Every now and then, we like to bring you some of our favorite stories from the past that we think were, you know, pretty good and want to run again. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And while I'm on the road reporting some new material for you, this week we have a few of our greatest hits. Plus, an interview with a self-described idiot about how to get your financial life in order. We start with a look at food and how we get it. On last week's show, we talked about President Trump's executive order on welfare and the Farm Bill, and what both could mean for SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or food stamps, and people who use them. All this got us thinking about access to food, and a conversation we had back in January about food deserts. According to government data, 39 million Americans live in an area with low access, their term, to a supermarket or large grocery store. And often that can particularly impact low-income residents. We spoke with Lauren Ornelas, the founder and director of the Food Empowerment Project. And we started with one of the group's food desert studies in California's Santa Clara County. What we did in Santa Clara County was, you know, this is a community where Cesar Chavez got his organizing start, and it was known as the Valley of Heart's Delight because of all the orchards that were everywhere. But more recently, it's known as the Silicon Valley. So we gathered up some of our volunteers and set out to do an assessment of the entire county, comparing high-income communities and low-income communities on the availability of healthy foods. And we did this by going and physically surveying locations, not restaurants or fast food, but grocery stores, convenience stores, liquor stores, on what types of foods, fresh produce, you know, vegetables, fruits, um, dairy alternatives, meat alternatives that the community actually had access to. And um, we made the comparison from the high-income communities and low-income communities and released our report, um, which had uh, some interesting findings. Tell me about this. One of the things that we found out was that, I guess, no surprise to many people, was that high-end communities had way more access to fresh produce than communities of color and low-income communities had. In fact, the high-income areas had 14 times more access to even frozen vegetables. Wow. So in communities of color and low-income communities, what you would typically find in the freezer section would be uh, frozen pizzas or ice cream, not necessarily frozen vegetables. Uh, We also found that in a lot of these communities, you had um, produce that may be available at at the convenience store at the register, but they didn't have prices on them. So that meant that whoever was behind the counter would determine how much, say, a banana would cost, and it might change depending on who you were. This type of system also puts people who don't speak English at an incredible disadvantage to others. You also noted the county's diabetes rates. Uh, you looked at, at chronic illnesses. There, were, What effects did, did you see in terms of being in some of these food desert areas have on residents' wellness? Well, I think, you know, Science and and nutritionists told us that diets higher in fruits and vegetables are better for you. And in the state of California, um, we, you know, we did our work in Northern California. You know, you have high rates of diabetes and other dietary diseases. The communities who are lacking healthy foods, they're suffering the health consequences of that. Well, what are some things do you think people listening to this interview might not realize? I, I know you mentioned to uh, my producer the, the idea of being time poor, which I think might be something that people in higher income communities are not thinking about. I think that a lot of times when people hear about issues like high rates of diabetes or other problems, they immediately think that these people 
quote unquote, um, don't want to eat healthy without acknowledging that many of these people desperately want to eat more fresh produce. It's simply not available to them, especially immigrants to this country actually ate healthier in the communities that they came from because they were able to grow their own food. So sometimes it's like, oh, well, you could buy, you know, you can go in bulk and buy things really cheap. But one, not a lot of these locations, these grocery stores have bulk sections. And two, a lot of people are exactly like time poor and cash poor, meaning that they're working several jobs to make ends meet. And they don't have a lot of time to sit and cook a meal from scratch. Tell me about the the recommendations you make, because I know you guys have talked with, you know, policymakers and and business leaders. What do you say to them in terms of how they can make some changes? One thing is that to make sure that bus lines um, for a lot of these people don't have cars. And so they're reliant upon buses in order to get to the from home to the grocery store from work. So to try and figure out ways to make the bus lines in locations where they actually are going from where communities of color and low income community people are living to the grocery stores without them having to take multiple buses. They can also ensure that there's no restrictions or limitations on how many grocery bags that people can bring on on the buses. We also really strongly feel that more needs to be done to help people grow their own food. This is something that overwhelmingly we found in focus groups is that people wanted to grow their own food. Not everybody has access to land, but if communities and city officials were able to provide land available for people to grow their own food, that's a win-win for everybody. Also, we feel that... Um, Worker-owned cooperatives are a big part of a solution for the issue where the people who are working there are from the community and the profits from those cooperatives stay in the community. Lauren Arnellis, founder and director of the Food Empowerment Project. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Just as you count on Marketplace for reliable, in-depth news and information, we are counting on listeners like you to invest in what we do. The more people who support Marketplace, the more we can do to raise economic intelligence across this country. You'll reap the rewards every time you listen, knowing that you're helping Marketplace make people smarter about the economy and why it matters. And don't forget, your donation will be matched dollar for dollar when you give today, thanks to a generous challenge from our friends at Candida. Now's the time, folks. Go to Marketplace.org and make a gift to become a Marketplace investor today. There was one part of the conversation with Lauren Ornelas that didn't make it to air, but piqued our interest. Grocery stores are actually vacating these communities and placing restrictive deeds, um, preventing grocery stores from moving in for up to 15 years. Teenagers who are 15 years old have never had a grocery store in their community. Restrictive deeds, also called restrictive covenants. Well, what are they and what do they mean for grocery stores? Well, let's start with what happens when a supermarket, often an anchor of a shopping area, leaves town. For Pam Bricker, it was the Safeway store in downtown Greeley, Colorado. Oh, well, it was very handy, you know, working downtown for me to be able to stop there and pick up things on the way home. But then, in 2014, it closed after nearly 60 years in business. I don't even know that they gave a full month's notice before um, the store closed. In a statement released at the time, Safeway said, quote, For more than a year, we evaluated the store extensively and looked at options to improve its performance. Ultimately, our business analysis indicated that we needed to cease operations at that location. It was the only grocery store in downtown Greeley, a city of 100,000 people north of Denver. Bricker, who directs Greeley's Downtown Development Authority, had a mission – 
find a new grocery store for the vacant space. So that is exactly what we did. We went out on an offer uh, for that building. However, the contingency came back that we would be unable to operate any other type of grocery store for at least a period of 20 years. Yep. No grocery store in that spot for 20 years. And it all comes down to two words, restrictive covenant. Tanya Marsh teaches law at Wake Forest University. So a restrictive covenant is just a promise where the landlord promises the tenant, in this case a grocery store, that they're not going to lease other space to competing uses. Basically, a grocery store's lease will say the landlord can't rent the space to another grocer. Grocery stores don't want another one next door. And grocery stores are big clients, so landlords listen. But when stores close, critics like Lauren Ornelas say these restrictive covenants can lead to food deserts, which brings us back to where we started. And for more on this from a grocery store's perspective, we have David Rogers. He heads DSR Marketing Systems, which conducts location analysis for grocery retailers. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you explain why a grocery store or chain would would want to have a restrictive covenant in place when a store closes? If they have uh, sister stores, which they still operate within a distance of, for example, two or three miles, they may wish to protect their sales out of concern that the space they're vacating would go to a competitor and have an impact on them. We've heard, obviously, from you know activists and critics who say, well, but the restrictive covenant can leave behind a food desert. I mean, is that something that, that stores think through? That, that is an issue. Everyone's very aware these days about the political significance of food deserts, but there's other issues of competition they're very concerned about. You know, I wonder when we're thinking about kind of retailers and large grocery stores, is there a way they could see food deserts as an opportunity? I think particularly as the industry is trending towards a somewhat smaller store size, their interest in areas like food deserts is increasing because a smaller box, which is less costly to operate, would be more desirable for them. Can you kind of walk me through the factors and the thinking that go into picking a site and and the kind of neighborhood someone operates in? I'd imagine that's a very complex calculation. What's involved? It is. A, a lot's involved. I mean, the, um, the site characteristics itself, the co-tenants, is there adequate parking? How much competition? Where is it located? If the area is coming up or going down or stagnant? And clearly, cost of rents is a big issue, you know, for a supermarket. You know, you do location analysis and research for these companies. And I guess I'm curious, when your clients are coming to you thinking about 2018 and going forward, what are they worried about? What's really top of mind for them? Top of mind right now is Amazon. And I think it's overblown. Now, if, if you are an uh, upmarket retailer, that serves the Amazon Prime type of customer, you are concerned about the fact that Amazon can now integrate Whole Foods with their Prime uh, memberships, and they can really serve the more affluent customer quite well. What we've not discussed is that the other major impact now taking place in the U.S. grocery industry is is the growth of the limited assortment retailers like Aldi and Lidl and save a lot their stores may be 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet in size. So they can slot into 
uh, a lot of sites, even those in, in food deserts. Those small box retailers, I think, have the potential to contribute to solving the problem of the food desert, as long as it's profitable for them. That was David Rogers. He heads DSR Marketing Systems, which conducts location analysis for grocery retailers. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. I'm on assignment in Puerto Rico, so this week, a look back at some of our favorite pieces. In July, we brought you a story about water, specifically an aquifer that crosses the border between New Mexico and Mexico. It's called the Mesilla Bolson, and it's drinkable and sandwiched between two of the biggest metro areas in the southwest. So yeah, there's a sharing problem. Ultimately... Like they say, the river pays for all of it. That, that, that is the lifeblood of this valley. No river, no life. Period. That was John Clayshult, a pecan farmer at this border in southern New Mexico, talking about the aquifer. Lauren Villagran is an investigative reporter at Searchlight New Mexico, and she wrote a five-part series on the situation for the Albuquerque Journal. She says if you go there, you won't see much. Well, above ground anyway. Obviously, it's not visible to the naked eye. It's underground. Um, I think a lot of people, when you hear the word aquifer, you think of this big underground lake. And that's not what this is. It's sort of like water that is held between grains of sand and silt and clay And it's sort of like a wet sandbox. A wet sandbox that has about 65 million acres of fresh water. In New Mexico, you have Las Cruces, a large metro area, plus farms like John Clay Schultz. But across the border, also drawing from the aquifer, is the second largest city in Mexico, Ciudad Juarez. This is a massive border city that has literally doubled in size almost every decade through the 1980s, then grown by half every decade. That level of growth is incredible and is in no way matched um, on this side of the border, on the U.S. side. Two big cities, one giant body of water that both need. How do you decide what to share? I mean, there got to be rules, right? Okay, the short answer is there are no rules, uh, at least when it comes to Um, international use of the aquifer. So every drop of the Rio Grande is apportioned to New Mexico, to Texas, and to Mexico. Now, groundwater, there is no binational accord. So essentially, whoever sticks a straw in the deepest and drinks it up the fastest gets the water. And I gather that the world's richest man uh, essentially stuck a giant straw down there as well. Yes. So Ciudad Juarez began running out of water on the main aquifer it shares with El Paso, Texas. So they looked west. And when they looked west and saw that there was this relatively prolific, untapped source on their side of the border, they decided they wanted to go in and tap it. But they didn't have the money. So they put that contract out to bid. And Mexico's richest man, Carlos Slim, who is in fact one of the richest men in the world. In the world, um, yeah. His company bid for the project and being one of the most influential and well-funded private enterprises in Mexico uh, won the contract. So Grupo Carso, which is the name of the company, basically put 
a straw in 23 wells on this aquifer and ran a 14-mile pipeline through the desert to Ciudad Juarez. So it was like overnight Juarez turned on a switch that turned on demand the size of the second largest city in New Mexico. So Juarez started drinking up as much as Las Cruces does. You know, we're talking to you because cities depend on water, farms depend on water, but but water is also a commodity. How valuable is this water to all of its various users? Oh, my goodness. I don't even know how you can sort of put, obviously, there is a price on water, what it costs for a utility to deliver that water. But when you think sort of longer term, what should water cost? Users do not pay what it's really worth. The 15-year drought that southern New Mexico has been suffering, um, when you think about the plans for growth, NAFTA-fueled growth on uh, the southern New Mexico um, border and the way that Ciudad Juarez is growing, and when you see the incredible amount of agriculture in southern New Mexico, which I think a lot of people outside of here may not know, um, New Mexico vies for either number one or number two each year um, in terms of pecan production. Uh, We fight with Georgia. And I don't know if people realize that in the desert, that many pecans are are being grown. But this water has problems, too. Yes. So the, the, the aquifer, the size of the aquifer is immense, right? But the vast majority of the water is brackish, which means it has high levels of salt. It's not potable. Um, there is a freshwater cap, and that is what the farmers and the cities and industry are drawing down at this point. So at some point... Um, What scientists say out here is we're not going to run out of water, but we're going to run out of cheap, easy to pump fresh water. And so something has to be done. It is the most expensive water that you can produce in the world, uh, brackish to potable. Um, That being said, the technology exists now. Uh, It gets cheaper all the time. And theoretically, southern New Mexico could pursue that route. Right now, it's just not financially feasible is what industry developers and folks in the business community tell me right now. We are in a moment where relations between the U.S. and Mexico are testy uh, at best. What happens to the future of this water and of the people who depend on it uh, sort of in our current politics? Well, my sense from, you know, speaking with people on both sides of the border is that it's unlikely that Washington and Mexico City are going to come to the table anytime soon to discuss this issue. That being said, people who work in, um, you know, on both sides of the border, we have a closer relationship to each other than, for example, northern Mexicans do to Mexico City or U.S. Mm. border residents do to Washington. So I think any hope for collaboration and cooperation um, lies in sort of local politics and local relationships. That was Lauren Villagran, an investigative reporter at Searchlight New Mexico, speaking with me in July. You can find a link to her amazing five-part investigative series for the Albuquerque Journal on our website, marketplace.org. From water to meat, or rather meat grown in a lab, it's part of a move towards more flavorful meatless products that help the environment and taste good, as the BBC's Reagan Morris reports from California. 
At the food company Just in San Francisco, you can eat an omelet without breaking any eggs. Plant protein, it's got some oil, some water, some salt, some minerals. It's so good. It tastes like eggs. It's now amazing. Imagine that. And you can eat a chicken named Ian as the chicken happily struts around your table. The chicken was handed off to me, and for this first prototype, I said to myself, I'm going to make the best chicken nuggets ever. In this promotional video for Just Clean Meat, six people sit around at a picnic table eating chicken nuggets which were grown in a lab from the cells of one of Ian's feathers. Meat grown in a lab is known as clean meat, and it's not yet commercially available. Joshua Tetrick, the CEO of Just Foods, says they plan to have a clean meat product available for sale by the end of the year. We have a pretty good grasp on the technology. It's a cell. You feed the cell nutrients. You differentiate the cell. Ultimately, you scale it up in a bioreactor. We've got an awesome team here. We understand how much it costs. We understand what the timelines are. We discount for things that we don't know could happen. That's the timeline. So this is our cell culture lab. That timeline is considered very ambitious in the red-hot market for lab-grown meat. I took a tour of Just's headquarters in San Francisco, and although I was allowed to peek into the lab where the meat was being grown, I was not allowed a close look or a taste. I did, however, get to taste those scrambled eggs, which are made from mung beans. So here, we aim to develop new clean meat products. Several companies are already on the market with plant-based burgers, which taste like real beef. They even bleed a bit. But Tetrick and others believe most people want real beef and real chicken, and that industrial factory farming is just not sustainable. We make things like eggs or ice cream or butter or mayo out of plants, and we make meat just out of meat. You just don't need to kill the animal. It's a new, fresh, we think even safer way of creating all the meat that the world needs tomorrow. Scaling up will be a challenge, but there are plenty of investors banking on meat alternatives. Bruce Friedrich of the Good Food Institute advocates for alternatives to conventional animal meat. What it looks like is going to happen here is transformation. So we have Tyson Foods, which is the second largest meat company in the world. Cargill, the largest privately held company in the United States and also the number three meat company in the United States. PHW Group, the largest chicken company in Germany. It is among the hottest technology in Silicon Valley. It's tiny at the moment, but it is about to explode. At Wursthal, a new German-inspired sausage and beer hall in San Mateo, California, the meat-heavy menu includes a vegan kebab made with plant-based impossible meat. I had dinner there with Rachel Conrad of Impossible Foods. If we can eliminate animals from the food chain, we will dramatically reduce you know, methane and greenhouse gas emissions. We've already got a viable product on the market. We're already in almost a thousand restaurants nationwide. So we really believe that this is the fastest and best way to eliminate animals from the food chain. But no one is even close to creating either a lab-grown or a veggie-based New York-style strip steak. And if they do manage to grow a realistic steak in a lab, would people be squeamish about eating it? The entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley are confident if they grow it, the customers will come. This is the time of year that forces us to think about our financial lives, tax season. 
But a lot of us don't pay much attention to money in the way that maybe we should be, you know, planning for the future. That's what happened to the New York Times' John Schwartz, and it forms the basis for his new book, This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm going to be transparent with our listeners. My first introduction to you is as a competitor – uh, when we were both working on covering the BP oil spill, and you out hustled me for a story. And when I started reading your book, I thought, well, this is this guy whom I thought of as like this really fierce reporter. How the heck did he get to be in his mid 50s without actually paying attention to his finances? Like, I couldn't actually, I, I couldn't make those two pictures jive. What happened? Well, I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) But having said that and apologize sincerely. Thank you. That's kind of why I was such a mess financially because I was so focused on the work thing. I was not a mess. I had been saving. I had started in my 20s with a 401k. I did a lot of things right. I just had no idea where I stood because the Vanguard envelope would show up at my house And I would put it on the coffee table, and after a certain amount of time, I would take it off the coffee table and throw it away. And so all these things piled up, and it was in my mid to late 50s that I realized, you know, it's really time to do something about this. Yeah. So you set out to do this project, this sort of review of your finances, and also get things in order. How did you go about it? Well, it started with retirement. There are tons of these Assess your retirement websites. And, you know, at Vanguard, it said, um, this is a 45-minute test. The first question took me 45 minutes to answer. So let's not kid ourselves that this is really simple or easy. It's straightforward. It just takes time. I did assess the, you know, the classic three legs of the stool of retirement, my 401k, my pension, and Social Security, all of which luckily I had. Not everybody has a pension anymore. Yeah. And I looked at it and uh, and wrote a story about this process, making it instructive in a way that I could tell people about the things that I find intimidating, that I had a strong sense that a lot of people found intimidating, and that by watching me do it, people might say, well, you know, if that moron can do it, I can probably muddle through. You had a long conversation with your wife when you started this, and you guys really took stock of sort of your financial lives. And there was something that stuck out to me, which is our weirdness about talking about money. And part of that, I think, can be about privilege. But part of that, and I think it seems the biggest part, is about death. How much of your inability to face your finances was about death? That's hanging over everything that you do in this area. You know, the first question in these financial planning assessments is often, when do you plan to retire? Which is like, I never thought of that before. But somewhere in the next couple is, how long do you expect to live? And I had no idea. But what a great exercise to think, well, okay, I don't smoke anymore. I do exercise. My dad's 91 and going strong. My mom's in her late 80s. I've probably got X amount of time unless the bus hits me. So it was a useful exercise, but I wouldn't have confronted it just on my own. It's not the kind of thing I think about. 
You talk about something in this book that I think very few financial advice books talk about, and I'm going to get into it with a text you got. Your wife is okay but had an accident. Please call me. Yeah. What, what happened? Well, Jean works as a crossing guard, and one day I get that text. Jean has been hit by a car. She needed lots of stitches in the back of her head. And so, you know, it is the kind of thing that can happen to anyone. Yeah. We were lucky that she was working at a job that had workers' comp. But that's the kind of medical expense that causes bankruptcies for families all over this country. What is the punch list for someone to prepare as much as you can for the possibility of high medical bills? One thing is to make sure that you've got medical insurance and to look hard at what that insurance offers. It's expensive. Yeah. And that's hard. But being hit with a major medical trauma is really expensive and really hard. So we have to think like economists a little bit. And that's hard, but so is buying a Honda. And we go through a checklist in our heads. You know, what am I going to get out of this? How much is it going to cost? Is it going to cost out? We do this all the time. We just don't think often of applying these things, these ideas to ourselves. You clearly looked pretty deeply um, at yourself in this book. I wonder what lessons you take away from looking at the various American financial systems, though, and scoping out a little bit? I think that we don't do enough to take care of people. First, to encourage them to do the right things. Setting up 401ks is great. Not everyone works for a company who has one. Not everyone works for a company that has one. You can start an IRA, but not everyone has the means to be able to contribute to it on a, on a regular basis, although I strongly recommend that people start. And so it goes from being a life benefit to being something voluntary. Well, we're not very good as humans at doing that. I think that we need to do more to protect people, to teach people, to gain financial literacy, but even more to protect people from unscrupulous brokers. And I would love to see us as a nation try to protect people's financial health in the way that we should be helping to protect people's health health And don't do that either, right? But it's one of the things that we're really missing out on as a country, and people would be a lot better off if we could move them in that direction. John Schwartz, thank you very much. Thank you. story about supply and demand, two of the most basic economic concepts. It's also a story about dogs, and it starts with mine, a wiggly seal-colored mutt named Mara, who originally came from Vidalia, Georgia. She was pulled from a county shelter with mange, a bloody face, very little fur. Local volunteers worked with a group where I live in Brooklyn, New York, to move her north, where I adopted her. And Mara is not alone. An entire industry has sprung up, moving a supply of adoptable dogs from the rural south to cities in the north where there's a demand for them. To figure out why, my producer and I split up, and I went to rural Marion, North Carolina, to the supply. 
That's where I met Joy Harkelroad. She's got a shy smile and a blue minivan with a Who Rescued Who sticker on the back. I actually got a call while I was in church. About what she's cradling in her arms, wrapped in a towel. A little weak old puppy that was thrown away in a trash bag with her six siblings. Harkle Road sits with her friend Susan Menard in Menard's kitchen, while three dogs run around at our feet, and the puppy, whose eyes are still closed, sucks on my thumb. She constantly gets calls from sheriff's deputies, the trash guy, and an informal network of people who know she rescues dogs. So much so that Menard teases her. When's the last time you had a vacation? Um, last time you went somewhere overnight, anywhere. Many, many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason why is that so many dogs need homes. I asked her why she thinks that is. Because there's no spay-neuter law, no leash law. And um, we, we've tried for years to get one, but every time we try, we get stopped. And it's usually by the hunters, you know, and they stop. They don't want any of these things instituted. And, you know, the county commissioners, are, you know, they're not, they're not in agreement that we need a spay-neuter law. So I went to see Ashley Wooten. He's the McDowell County manager. And he says when the idea of a spay and neuter law comes up, yeah, hunters don't like it. And the North Carolina Sporting Dog Association told us they don't. Wooten says other people think it's government overreach, but also it's expensive. When you have the poverty level that we do in a working class community like we do, uh, it's harder for folks to say, okay, I'm going to go out and spend $300 for this whatever procedure that my dog needs or my cat or to spend $150 on a spay and neuter. Instead, they've focused on education, low-cost vet services, and bringing the euthanasia rate down at the county shelter. That also means that in McDowell County and across North Carolina, there's an entire network of people like Joy Hargelrow. At Rusty's Legacy, a volunteer rescue not too far away, there are 32 dogs in kennels. Some will live out their lives here, like Marshall, who was found hogtied in the woods. But I'm here to meet the dogs going north. I'm picking up animals that are going to Connecticut Humane Society to find their forever homes. Kelly Brown from yet another rescue group, Brother Wolf, loads four cream and white hound puppies, plus one brindle, into crates while Vicki Harper says goodbye. You have a new exciting life. Yes, you do. And I then follow Brown and these little ones, all of whom have names that start with Z, to the Brother Wolf building in Asheville, where they get a vet check and some shots. And he's a boy. I'm I'm a little more dramatic than the girls. Aww. He's fine, really. Brother Wolf started transporting dogs north roughly a decade ago. This year, they've moved more than 650 dogs. And it costs about $200 per dog just to get them medically ready. That's before their crates are even put in the van. One more crate, one more dog. We'll be all set. From here, we'll drive an hour and a half to Taylorsville, North Carolina, to meet Kelly Ivory. Yeah, there are a lot of Kellys in this story. Ivory has made a business out of transporting dogs. Hi, everybody. In Taylorsville, she collects the dogs from rescue groups all across the state and loads them into her van for a 13-hour trip to that new life in Connecticut. (laughs) We're going to be driving, and while one's driving, the other one's going to be sleeping, and... There's any messes in the back? Whoever's not driving is cleaning it up as it happens. My name is Kelly Ivory, and I run Howl on Wheels Transport. 
It is a transport for rescue dogs. Um, an average week for me could be 5,200 miles on a road with a load full of dogs. I was running a humane society and I seen the need to get some of these dogs out of this area. So I went ahead and got a van and decided that this is what I need to do. So here it is, an hour into the trip. We just stopped. We needed to grab something to drink. We've had some dogs that just didn't settle down at this point. We've had to clean a few crates, but we are ongoing. Live deer. Arms on or vertical. There's, there's not a lot of money making and transporting when you're looking at all the expenses you're putting out just to keep the vans on the road. Usually the receiving rescues will pay me. I usually say, okay, it's going to be a dollar per mile. This one's about a $1,600 run, um, and it's based off of the fuel, the payroll, the amount of maintenance. I mean, I'm averaging anywhere from eight to $1,600 a month just in maintenance. I make ends meet, but that's pretty much it. Okay, it is 1 a.m. in the morning. We have just stopped. We just got some fuel. Uh, I'm going to use the restroom, grab some snacks, clean any crates that need to be cleaned. Hi, baby. Who's a big baby? Look at you. Oh, yes, you did a mess in there. Hold on. You're soaked, girly. You're soaked. We have scheduled stops, so we, we will stop, we will walk a dog, we will clean up their kennels. So by the time that we arrive up in the north, you can open up that door and you don't typically smell anything. So here it is, 6.30 a.m. We're getting ready to cross over the Tappan Zee Bridge. We're hoping to get to the Connecticut Humane Society in time. I've been doing this in business for almost five years. There's definitely some competition out there. I've seen a huge increase on the amount of transporters that have opened businesses, especially the last couple of years. A lot of these dogs don't deserve what they've been dished out. If I can be that, that leg of transportation up to the north to help, then I'm going to do it. And when the dogs arrive, well, it's not quite over. Marketplace's Peter Balanon-Rosen picks up our story. He went to Newington, Connecticut to follow the dog's journey and explore why there's northern demand for southern dogs in the first place. Yep, this is a story of supply and demand after all. So before we get back to the puppies, let's talk about that. To walk us through, meet Gordon Willard. I'm the executive director here at the Connecticut Humane Society. Where the dogs from North Carolina have just arrived. Willard's been in this biz since 1983. Back then, across the Northeast... We were dealing with uh, surplus animals. We had oversupply and under-demand. Back then, the Connecticut Humane Society processed over 40,000 local animals each year. But then, in the mid-90s, something changed. All of a sudden, fewer homeless dogs. Which meant spaying and neutering was working. New rules across New England made owners sterilize their pets... But just as fewer dogs got to shelters, demand for them shot up. Why? Well, a few reasons. One, spay-neuter rules meant fewer people adopting out unwanted litters. Two, it also meant fewer strays. 
and three purebred dogs and their puppy mill associations were not so cool anymore. And the word rescue took on a different connotation. Then Hurricane Katrina hit. In 2005, Northeast Humane Groups pooled resources to transport dogs from New Orleans. It showed them, whoa, we can bring dogs from other places, disaster or no. And by 2016, Connecticut organizations were bringing up about 20,000 animals a year from out of state. Today, about one in every 10 comes here to the Connecticut Humane Society. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Staff and volunteers get ready, putting on bright blue scrubs. I suit up, too. Get our gloves on, and then we'll start taking dogs off as soon as the vet comes. As soon as the vet comes. There's a whole process to this. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has 23 pages of regulations for how to handle and transport dogs. Inside the van, dogs wait. The unloading process, it's a choreography, one dog at a time. I meet this little rat terrier. She's white with pointy black ears, and her name's Abby. She's terrified, pees herself as volunteer Steve Wilbert picks her up. They clean that up and take Abby for a walk. Little by little, you see the transformation. Abby goes from trembling to sniffing around the lawn. She even jumps at a tree. That's my girl. You ready to go in and take a look at the vet? Let's go. Let's turn her around and we're going to just look at her knees and look at her skin. Vet Kaylin Machevsky examines every dog. She sees a strange spot on Abby. Machevsky examines her fur with a black light, looking for any bacteria or fungus. So anything weird will glow a green. She looks good. She does. Let's go, Abs. Abby heads to an area where transport dogs stay for 48 hours before joining other dogs up for adoption. Now, with all of this, there are costs. The medical exams down south, the transport, and this processing. Connecticut Humane Society foots the bill for all of it, and it adds up. Again, Director Gordon Willard. In economic terms, this is the most horrible business plan you could ever create. But in mission terms and in humane terms, this is exactly what our donors ask us to do. Can you put a dollar figure to how much you spend on each dog? About a net figure, we're looking about $900 subsidy per animal adopted. Adoption fees range from $100 for older dogs to $445 for puppies. Willard says the shelter stays open because of their donors, not money from adoptions. I pop down to the adoption area. It's loud. Irving Cologne came by with a friend. I'm thinking of getting a, a dog now that I just moved into the area. I know a lot of the, a lot of the animals they have here are rescues that are either from the area or from elsewhere. Is that something that, that's on your mind? They should all get a chance, so I'm not too picky on, on their background and stuff like that. Staff say most of the transport dogs will be adopted out within the week. And they say when the year's through, like every year, they'll crunch the numbers, go through their books, and see if transport is something they plan to continue. I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen for Marketplace. This story was produced in partnership with Topic, a film, television, and digital studio. You can find a link to Topic's beautiful images for this story and their very cute subjects. Just go to Marketplace.org. When I was little, I wanted to be a paleontologist. 
And we all have our dreams, becoming a doctor, a vet, an ice cream flavor developer. But how do you get to work in certain professions? We take a look with our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. My name is Doug Wheelock. Right now I'm a NASA astronaut, and I'm sitting in Houston, Texas at the Johnson Space Center. I've flown in space twice, once on the Space Shuttle Discovery, and then I lived in space for six months in 2010 as the commander of the International Space Station. So what we look for in uh, folks that want to become an astronaut or work at NASA is we look for people who are interested in the STEM fields. So that's science, technology, engineering, and math. And so we encourage everyone to find a particular area in those courses of study that they really enjoy. Develop a passion for it. Be curious about the world around you. And be curious and always ask questions. We do have some height qualifications. I think it's 62 inches to 76 inches. So that's 5'2 to 6'4". And that's only so you can fit in our spacesuits and so you can fit in the spaceships as well. Also, to be physically active and healthy is a requirement because the, the body goes through a lot of stress when you go to space. And so we need folks with a strong um, sense of um, hand-to-eye coordination and physically able to do more difficult manual work. And that with the vision... As long as your vision is correctable to 2020, it's no problem if you wear glasses. We normally pick our astronauts when they're about mid-30s. Anywhere from 30 to 38 usually is kind of the average age of a person being selected as an astronaut. So when I meet with students, say, in high school or even just in coming through college, it's my first advice to them is just relax. You, you've got plenty of time. And I encourage uh, students of all ages to have a plan, of course. An advanced degree in science and technology, engineering and math are highly desirable. So if you can work toward a master's degree and even a PhD, we love to see that in our astronauts. But even more importantly, be able to work in an operational environment to have some work experience as well where you use your schooling in decision-making, in problem-solving, and things like that. But to not make being an astronaut your end-all and be-all goal. Because in the process, you know, the selection is so stringent, you want to be able to be enjoying what you're doing as well. If you don't make it into the astronaut corps, at least you have a cool job that you love. Once you get here, when someone's selected as an astronaut, for the first two years, they're actually focused 100% on training. Our astronauts are learning about the systems on the space station, but also about our new rockets. Our astronauts are learning Russian, and some of them flying on a Russian Soyuz up to the space station. And we have new vehicles that are coming. You may have heard about SpaceX and Boeing. They're building vehicles, rockets that are going to launch from Florida. It's really pretty fun uh, training to be an astronaut. Was, I've been an astronaut now for 19 years. I still feel like a young kid just walking in the front door here. Ever wondered about a certain job? Get in touch. We're weekend at marketplace.org. And if you're listening via podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find us.
Next time on Marketplace Weekend, we'll bring you stories from our recent reporting trip to Puerto Rico as we check in with some of the people we met back in November, like Michelle Rodriguez. Our ceilings were damaged by the storm. We also had damage with the air conditioning system, so none of those are <laughs> working by now. And that's a problem because every time it rains, it... Um, um, yeah, that's why you you see the 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 stains of water. Yeah, it leaks. We'll delve into school closures, housing, and what happened to all that debris. More on those stories across Marketplace next week. And that is it for this Marketplace weekend. This show is produced by Eliza Mills, Peter Ballinon-Rosen, and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is our executive editor. Deborah Clark is Marketplace's senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Next week, our check-in from Puerto Rico. Thanks for listening. This is APM.